0: Thank you for listening to Emmanuel Baptist Church's podcast. For more information about the church, please visit our website at www.emanuelmanning.com. Thanks, and enjoy the sermon. Well, let me get myself set up here, and then we can uh, look at Ezekiel 43, uh, together, we're we're looking actually at forty through forty-eight, um, but a lot of it is the description of a temple, uh, and a bunch of stuff that perhaps a nerdy priest would be into, and indeed maybe stuff we should be into, but not stuff that I'm going to make you read. Uh, so let me get set up here, and we'll look together. There I am at. This. What I am going to do is focus on Ezekiel forty-three, because that really is at the center and at the heart of this passage. Have y'all adjusted yet to the uh, time change? I got some resounding yes and some resounding no answers. So, last week, we talked about, uh, for the second time, the Gog and Magog stuff that's going on in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And that was a continuation of the good stuff that began in chapter 34 of Ezekiel, where Ezekiel began to prophesy about God's restoring everything that had been broken. And so, new leadership, new people... Um, destruction of enemies, and now in chapter 40 through 48, we see something that would have been really big in Ezekiel's mind because he was a priest, uh, this new temple. And I just want to look at this tonight under this idea of the return of the king, uh, because the king is set in this vision to return to the temple. So here's what I want you to do. Flip back to Ezekiel 40 with me, And I'm just going to read what are the headings in my Bible until we get to chapter 43, okay? And so you'll see, hopefully, if you have a Bible like mine, just over chapter 40, it says a vision of a new what? Vision of the new temple. And so Ezekiel gives us another one of these time stamps in the 25th year of our exile. Now, if you'll remember back in Ezekiel chapter 1 he began his ministry in the fifth year of the exile. So this vision, which carries us to the end of the book, happened after uh, 20 years of Ezekiel's ministry and after 25 years of the people being in exile, out of the promised land because of their sin. So there's a vision of the new temple. Uh, Then flip over to verse 5. There's a heading there in my Bible, which he begins basically to just describe the physical features of this temple. So the outer court and the east gate of it, uh, and then he goes into the outer court in verse 17. In verse 20, he looks around and sees the north gate, and in 24 he sees the south gate, and then the temple had an outer structure, and then it had an inner court, and he begins to see that in chapter... Uh, 40 verse 28 y'all with me verse 44 he begins to see the chambers for the priests and there are a lot of them and they're pretty amazing and it would be good for him as someone who had trained as a priest to see these and then in uh, verse 48 he enters into the vestibule of the temple vestibule is far and away my favorite church word it's the same thing as narthex or as we call it the foyer Um, and he's making his way into the inner temple, which he sees in chapter 41, verse 1, and he describes the inside of the inner part of the temple for the rest of chapter 41. Then in chapter 42, he begins to look at the different chamber sections of the, the temple, this new temple, this visionary temple that he's seeing, and he talks about the thickness of the walls and about how many cubits it is, Uh, and perhaps me and and Kevin down here would be interested in the dimensions of a building, Uh, but that's what he's doing. He describes some of the inner workings that were on the inside of the temple, palm trees and uh, things like that, which would have been inside Solomon's temple. It's just a grand vision. I have a friend in Somerton, and what he does kind of for a living is architects send him plans for buildings, and he he makes these computer 3D walkthroughs. Have you ever seen one of those? Uh, And that's sort of what's going on here in in Ezekiel's vision. He's getting like that 3D walkthrough of this temple that the Lord is giving him in a vision. And then we get to chapter 43. And I want us to read together uh, verses 1 to 12. Then he led me to the east, to the gate, uh, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters. Where have you heard that phrase, sound of many waters before? Revelation describing Jesus. Um, And the earth shone with his glory. So God was so big and bright that the, the sand and the earth lit up at his presence And the vision I saw was just like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city and just like the vision that I had seen by the Chebar Canal. And I fell on my face and the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east. The spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple while the man was standing. This is the, the man who had been measuring things for Ezekiel. While the man uh, was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And the house of Israel shall be no more. Defile my holy name. The house of Israel shall no more. Defile my holy name. Neither they nor their kings by their hoarding and by uh, the dead bodies of their kings at their high places." "'By setting their threshold by my threshold "'and their doorpost beside my doorpost "'with only a wall between me and them. "'They have defiled my holy name "'by their abominations they have committed, "'so I have consumed them in my anger. "'Now let them put away their whoring "'and the dead bodies of their kings far from me, "'and I will dwell in their midst forever. "'As for you, son of man, "'describe to the house of Israel the temple "'that they may be ashamed of their iniquity "'and they shall measure the plan.'" And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangements, its exits, and its entrances, that is, its whole design, and make known to them as well all its statutes and its whole design and all its laws, and write it down in their sight so that they may observe all its laws and all its statues and carry them out. This is the law of the temple, the whole territory on the top of the mountain, all round shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple." And then having described the temple, he goes on to describe the the reinstitution of worship. Uh, And remember, in in the Bible, worship is not singing with your hands raised, feeling warm fuzzies. Worship in the Bible is a word that's usually reserved for bringing a sacrifice. And so worship is reinstituted with the altar Uh, in the rest of chapter 43. And then in chapter 44, this mysterious person called the prince is described. And then in verse 15 of chapter 44, you begin to see the rules for the Levitical priests in chapter 45. There's the holy district and a little bit saved for the prince in chapter 46. The feasts are reinstituted. Uh, the, The image I have in my mind is actually of Ben Brewer, where he had that chemo in that stem cell transplant such that his stem cells are having to rebuild from new, like he has to get all of his boosters and immunity stuff again. So it's like a resetting, like a little baby again in terms of his immunity. Like here, they're resetting the temple, resetting the sacrifices, resetting the priesthood, resetting the feasts. And then in chapter 47, this blessing begins to flow out to the land because there's this trickling stream that comes from the presence of God. And this stream just builds and grows and grows and grows and grows until it kind of goes down toward the sea. And this river is such good water that it actually makes all of the water of all of the oceans fresh. And then in verse 13 of chapter 47, the land is divided again. So We're going back to the second half of Joshua the Lord's going to redivide the land. So the, the picture here is of God restoring Israel to be what it should be. And Ezekiel, this book that has so many weird pictures and so many visions and Ezekiel doing so many things, actually ends uh, by describing the way that the land is portioned out. Now for us that sounds... Eh. Because so few of us make our living off the land or really are invested in a piece of land. Uh, But this was their inheritance. And so to hear about this again, this would have been the climax for them. Whereas we're like, why does so-and-so get so many acres? And then there's the gates of the city in uh, verse 30 of Ezekiel 48. And it says, they shall be the exits of the city. It talks about how big they are, where they're headed, Uh, which direction they face. And then it just says in verse 35 of Ezekiel 48, the circumference of the city shall be 18,000 cubits. The name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord is there. Now, the reason we entitle this the return of the king is because this goes back to the very beginning where Ezekiel begins to prophesy about the fact that Israel's corruption has become so deep and so pervasive that God cannot dwell with her anymore. Now, no matter what you think of the Old Testament, if you were to try and boil down the Old Testament to one promise that led to one problem, it is that God's presence is what they sought. You'll remember when the people of Israel were leaving Egypt and going to the promised land, they made the two golden calves and had an orgy there in front of the two. That's what the, the Hebrews clear had a a ritualistic religious sex fest uh, by these two calves and the Lord basically said, I can't be with these people. They're too sinful. Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take them and go on. I'm going to hang out here. And in Exodus 33 and 34, you have one of the great interchanges in all of the Bible where Moses pleads for the life of the people of Israel and basically says, if you don't go with us, it's not worth going. And so God's presence had been given to them The temple, again, whatever you think it was about, the temple fundamentally was about God being in the middle of his people. And in the beginning of Ezekiel, there's this image that Ezekiel has, this vision where the glory of God leaves the temple uh, and goes up and sits on a hill, and then the glory of God just leaves. And that, for the people of Israel, with all of the history that they had had, uh, would have been heartbreaking. And the Lord moves out of Jerusalem, and then prophecies about Jerusalem's destruction come thick and fast for a number of chapters. And then finally, Jerusalem is destroyed. But here we see the return of the king, that God is going to reconcile, and the Lord is going to restore. The first thing we see is that the Lord is going to restore the temple and bring his holy presence back. (laughs) What's interesting is there's not enough information here to actually build anything. All you're given is like the floor plan, but there's nothing about the height of the temple at all. It's, it's not even meant to be built. Can I go ahead and get the cat out of the bag? Because when the Lord originally gave the temple that, uh, that Solomon built and that Moses, the tabernacle that he built... Time and time again, when the Lord would show something new to Moses, he would say, make sure it's built according to this plan. Make sure it's built according to this plan. Make sure it's built according to this plan over and over again. And here, there's never even a command to build it. This is a vision of something. Uh, but it's, it's given in terms that Ezekiel might understand of this restored temple. And with the restored temple, you see God's holy presence coming back. Now, here's a picture of the temple. This is from Christopher Wright's. Uh, commentary on ezekiel this is your compass rose kids all right now east is huge uh, because this building right here is the temple all right the the temple proper this whole thing is the, the temple area so uh this is the outer wall these are the the gates right here this is the east gate and Ezekiel is brought in through the east gate. And then he goes and he looks at some things. Now, I love this because you'll learn later that there are, there's a kitchen on every corner. Now, a Baptist can worship in this place <laughs> if there's a kitchen on every corner. So he goes in, he sees some things, he goes to this north gate, he comes down and he sees this other gate. Now, what's interesting about this temple is there's seven steps to get up here. And then once you're inside this outer court, there's this inner court all right, And there's eight steps to get up to that. And then you enter in and here's the temple building itself. And there's more steps to get up into that. And what's interesting about this temple, and I don't want to go into all the detail. I just want to give you the overall and then make some points from it. With each door getting close to the temple, the door gets thinner. The doorway gets thinner. It gets higher and it gets thinner. Now, what, what does that mean? That is a visionary way of the Lord letting us know that this is a holy place. It's set seven steps up above normal terrain. And then that inner court is set even higher up. And then where the temple of the Lord is, is set even higher up. And the thing is, anybody, uh, when this temple is restored, can go in and out of it. But as you get closer to the Lord, the doorways thin, uh, almost as a, a little nod to the fact that if you're going to be in God's presence, you have to be holy. Now, I don't know about you, but because of my upbringing or just because of the milieu in which we live, hearing about God being holy always comes across as a threat. Is that just me? I mean, as I grow, it's less and less of a threat. But as you get into the, because when I think of God's holiness, I immediately think about what? like my lack thereof, right? And so, but that's not what's going on here. The picture isn't of an exclusive club uh, that, you have, you know, that you have to enter in various things by. The picture here is, is just of, of high holiness and the, the people of God had fallen short of that, but the Lord again was going to restore this so they could be drawn into his holy presence. Uh. Holiness in the scripture is not a threat. Holiness in the scripture is supposed to be a beautiful draw. At some point in your life, if you're going to be a Christian, you've got to realize that sin is deadly, that sin is damning. But you also have to realize that sin is just ugly. And it just leads to a half-life. And holiness is where true life is. Seriously, who has more life like the young man who can like lay with any woman he wants or the couple that's been married for 75 years monogamously, which is just more beautiful. Yes, right. And which is more beautiful, like the hands that generously give to the poor or the hands that score a big win in Las Vegas? Holiness is just more beautiful. And that's the picture here, that God in his grace is going to bring uh, his presence back into Israel, and he's going to give them a new holy place where he's going to dwell so that they can be with him in his beautiful, holy presence. That's why the Psalms say, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. So this leads to my question, and this is one I've asked several times before, but it's always worth pondering again. Do, Do the commands of Scripture feel like something that shackles you or do they feel like the doorway to freedom? Like that one distinction is a good test of your heart to know whether or not you love God. Because for those who only love themselves and are out to save themselves because hell doesn't sound good and it'd be nice for God to say attaboy, like all of his laws sound like handcuffs. But for those who are holy, God's laws sound like invitation to beauty. That makes sense and so the Lord here is talking about his restored temple his holy presence now this leads to a question that we have to answer and here's the question probably most Christians just by default because of the way they read the Bible think that this is a temple that has to be built that this is describing a real temple that's going to be built in the future. And just like we encountered uh, the Gog and Magog stuff about Russia forming an alliance with uh, the Islamic countries around Israel and invading it and Israel winning and, and everybody thinking that all of this stuff that's being described is still in the future. And we tried to show over the last couple of weeks that no, that Gog Magog stuff has already happened Uh, I want to argue that this temple is not to be understood as something that has to be built. Why? Well, again, because it's never said build this. That's one thing. The second thing is this. For all of the people, and they are many, and they are usually in the top five number one bestsellers in any Christian section of any Christian bookstore, The End Times... What about the ashes of the red heifer? They found the red heifer again. Once they get the ashes of the red heifer, they can begin building the temple and because there has to be a temple built and and all of these things have to happen and Ezekiel 40 through 48 says so. I don't think so. Why? What was the temple's job according to the New Testament? To foreshadow who? Jesus and his sacrifice. Quick question if the whole point of the temple was to foreshadow Jesus' coming and sacrifice, why would we build a new one now that Jesus has come and given his sacrifice? Doesn't that seem regressive? I'm looking forward to the temple when they rebuild it, even though Jesus has already fulfilled it. And what they say is, well, that they're not atoning sacrifices, they're just commemorating Christ's death. Has Jesus given us anything to commemorate his death? I'm trying to think of something. What am I thinking of here? The Lord's Supper, right? Secondly, especially if you read John. Now, we've talked about how John, because John came from a priestly family as well. John quotes Ezekiel in Revelation all the time. But what's interesting is Ezekiel also informs John's gospel, and one of, the, one of the main things that happens in John's gospel is that Jesus over and over again drops little clues to let you know that he's the new temple. So he says in John 4 when he meets this woman uh, at the well, uh, they were, she wanted to get in a theological argument about whether the temple should be on this mountain or this mountain. And Jesus says there's coming a day where we're not going to worship in this mountain or this mountain, but we're going to worship in spirit and truth. And there's no parentheses in the Greek that says until that day a temple is rebuilt, and then I guess we'll go back there. It doesn't happen. Furthermore, this idea of that stream that's growing—you remember that section uh, in where where Jesus basically says, "If you believe in me, you'll never thirst again, but you'll have streams of living water going out of you." That was said in a, a, a feast that had to do with water. Uh, And so Jesus is claiming to be this temple. He's claiming to be all of these things. And furthermore, if we move past that, who is the temple in the New Testament? The church. The church is the temple. Y'all may not care about this, but I'm just trying to prepare you for the future. When somebody hands you a scary book where somebody's told you about what the end times are going to be, And invariably in it, there's going to be a temple and there's going to be sacrifices. And I just want you to have this thought in your mind. Jesus already fulfilled that. So anything that God is going to do in the future is probably not going to, I don't know, diss his son for everything he did. What do you think? And this helps us as we read scripture again. What the Lord is promising here is the very thing that the temple meant to the people of Israel The temple meant God was with them. It's about his presence. God is with his people. That's the promise of the temple, and that's what the Lord is saying here. Then the Lord goes on to say there's restored intimacy, restored worship. This is where he begins to talk about the altar, and this is where he begins to talk about all that stuff for the priests, that when you read it, the drool begins to form in the corner of your mouth as you doze off. Because you wonder why in the world anybody would care about vessels that have to do with worship. Here's why they cared about vessels that have to do with worship. Because in a two and a half weeks or so, you're going to have Thanksgiving. And for many of you, you're going to have the fine china out, right? And before you put the fine china out, Kevin's like, I'm not having fine china out at all. Um, you pull it out of the cabinet and do you just go, well, it's been in the cabinet, it's good. Now, what do you do? You take each dish and you do what? And why do you wash it? Because it's disgusting to have dust on it, number one. But also, people that you love are coming and you're getting ready to celebrate a big meal, right? Remember when we went through Leviticus? Leviticus has all of these things about ways of making sacrifices. And and you can go so far down in the detail that you forget that fundamentally what's going on when a person from Israel brought a sacrifice to God... Yes, atonement for sin was occurring, but most of the time, sacrifices weren't about atonement for sin. They were about sharing a meal with God in his presence. And so the reason Ezekiel cares about all of this stuff is because these promises that God is making to him are promises that remind him again, listen to me, that God likes to eat with people. He likes to eat with people. He wants intimacy with you. I can't stress this point enough. I can say this after 42, nearly 43 years of life. Are you ready? There's more intimacy with God out there for you. And the reason you don't have it is generally not because God is withholding it from you. He wants intimacy. He's told you the ways to come. It's just we would rather stay up late and finish the movie so that we don't get up early. And then we go, Lord, No, yes, sometimes we feel like we've been abandoned by the Lord with no cause. But a lot of the time, when when we think about not having intimacy with the Lord, I don't know about you, but I can just sort of think, it's it's me, isn't it? It's me. So there's the restored worship, then there's restored land. This land is clean and life-giving. I think that's part of the picture of that river that just goes to a trickle and then just builds and builds and builds and builds. By the way, for those of you who know, uh, my view of the end times is not that things are going to be progressively worse before Jesus comes back. My view is things are going to be progressively better and more Christianized before he comes back. I'm actually very hopeful and bright about the future. Even uh, no matter how you interpret last night's election results, the future is bright. Why? Why? Because the Bible promises that after Jesus is enthroned, God is going to systematically make every one of his enemies his footstool until the final when death is brought under his feet. And so there's these pictures of progressive growth, 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 growth. And I think you see that even here with this river. It starts off with a trickle, but it grows and it grows and it grows and it gets deeper and it gets wider and then it goes out into the sea and it makes all the salty water fresh These are the kind of pictures that Jesus gives of the kingdom. It's a small little seed, but it grows to be the biggest tree, and all of the birds come and nest in its branches. You're like, but Drew, the world seems so dark. You ever thought that maybe the world seems so dark because we interpret it by what we believe, and if we believed something different, we could interpret it differently? How about this? If you thought that before Jesus came back, Most people were going to become Christians. Would that put a little wind in your sails to actually share the gospel? Or do you go out with a defeatist attitude? Well, it's only going to get worse. People don't believe it anyway. what you think about the future determines what you do now. And the picture here is of this river that is clean and life-giving. It cleanses the land and it feeds the trees. And so these trees grow and they become trees that have leaves that lead to the healing of the nation's Um, A wonderful picture there of this restored land. And then finally, the reordered people. You guys are into this, I can tell. This is a picture of the way that the land is going to look when God reorders it. Now, if you were to have up, if you go to the back of your Bible and look at the maps and the way that the land of Israel was originally Uh, spread out among the tribes, it is in many ways very disproportionate. You've got little tribes, little tribes, big tribes, huge tribes, little tribe, little tribe, little tribe, little land up in the mountains for the mountain people, then the beach people, I guess, get this down here. And, you know, uh, but this is what the Lord says it's going to be like uh, when he restores his people. Now, again, the point here isn't, that this is literally what it's going to look like. For that matter, it's not even literally going to be the people of Israel. It's going to be the fulfilled Israel, that is the church. But the, the idea that you're supposed to get from this is that, A, everybody's going to be equal. Right? Galatians 3, in Christ, there's neither male nor female. Right? In Jesus, Jesus brings us all to the throne of God. During this time, while we're down here, yes, there are roles. Yes, there are authority structures. But when the Lord returns, all those things are are laid aside. And all of us now, in our own way, by ourselves, through Jesus, can go right to God. And that's the picture here. It's a picture of uh, equity. God's right in the middle with his little reserve section. Um, So he's in the middle of his people. And uh, it's equal and it's secure. One of the things that Lord says here I think it's in chapter 47 is there's not going to be any prince who can buy up and take land. It says everybody will always have his tribe's inheritance. And so the way you're supposed to read this is not wonder, when is this going to happen? You're supposed to say, "When the Lord restores all things, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be amazing. So what's the significance? Well, number one, this vision of Israel teaches us again about the holiness of the Lord. And in chapter 43, when we read it, what we saw is that the Lord wants the whole people of Israel to see this picture so that they can repent of their sins and so they can come back to him. They can see his glorious picture and they'll leave their sin as it says, all of their whorings and all of their dead kings on high places. How would you like it if that's the way God characterized your history? Like when he thinks of Emmanuel, all their whorings and all their dead kings on high places. But in spite of the fact that that is true of Israel, God is giving them again another picture of